Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello, and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK, and BikeRadar.com. Hi there, welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Uh, this is one of our Tour de France specials. Um, so we're running a series of podcasts throughout the Tour de France, bringing you the best bits of tech, best bits of news, um, and some opinions on what's happening in this year's race. So um, do keep uh, an ear out for all of those going forward. Uh, I'm Tom Marvin, one of the technical editors at Bike Radar. Uh, and with me today is Warren Roster. He's the senior road technical editor um, across all things road. Um, how's it going, Was Good, thanks, mate. And yourself? Yeah, very well, thank you. Yeah, um, we're actually recording this before the tour actually starts, yeah. uh, which is very efficient of us. Um, but if we assume that it's going out when the tour's on, are you enjoying the tour this year? I'm pretty sure I will. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's just good to see um, you know some semblance of normality returning. Yeah, yeah, and it looks like a good route this year as well. Um, yeah, it looks tough. I mean, it looks it looks like it's going to uh, have some proper proper days mm. where it's going to you know divide the divide the race hopefully yeah you know there's a c- couple of time trials uh time trials going on this year and some really good um mountain stages i think we've got a podcast going out um as part of the series on the best uh climbs of the tour de france so um if you're into climbs have a listen out for that but this this pod is a bit more tech focused um so we're going to talk talk about bikes from the past uh, from the previous, what is it, 103, 104 episodes of the Tour de France has, has happened now. Um, probably not going to go all the way back to the start, but uh, we're going to look at the past sort of 30, 30 odd years, I guess. Um, and some of the sort of tech innovations um, that have been presented at the Tour and some of the bikes that kind of maybe paved the way or represented uh, a change in bike design um, and the impact that that sort of had. Is that about right? Yeah, I think so. You know, I've sort of. I, I, when you asked me about this, I was kind of thinking about bikes that I remember and bikes that I can sort of think, wow, that was... And then when you go back and look at them and sort of look at their details, I think they either... There's a few that might have been dead ends mm-hmm. or a few bits or components that might have been sort of dead ends. But there are other things that you just think, wow, that was that was way, way ahead of its time. And mm-hmm. it's had a huge influence on 
on the way bikes look today. You know, the big thing is that, you know, in, and I think, you know, I've been doing this for long enough that it's kind of every decade brings lots of criticism where people go, oh, bikes look the same. Mm. You know, they all look the same nowadays. So I'm kind of thinking, well, they always look the same. You know, right from my kind of earliest memories of watching racing in the, you know, when I was, you know. Don't reveal your age here, was. Well, no, when I was like, <laughs> you know, when I was like, you know, seven to ten, you know, the late 70s, you yeah. know, early, you know, going throughout the 80s, you know, all those bikes look the same because you had basically two or three steel manufacturers in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, you had Reynolds, you had Columbus at the top end. Um, all of their tube diameters were basically the same. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the ingredients that went into it was basically the same. The construction method was basically, basically mm -hmm. the same. You know, the, you got some lugs, you plugged the bits in, you welded it, you put it together. That was, you know, that was a bike. So, all of those kind of legendary bikes, when we think of, you know, you think of Eddie Merckx or going further back to Faster Copy and, you know, these absolute towering legends of the sport, all their bikes looked relatively the same. Yeah. Um, and then you move on to the aluminium era. Mm -hmm. Everything went oversized and everything like that. Aluminium bikes tended to look all the same. Mm. Um, first generation carbon bikes, because carbon was kind of in its infancy and we were looking at a kind of a construction method that aped what we did with steel and aluminium. So you had a lug and then you plugged a tube into uh -huh. it, you wrapped some carbon around, you put it together. They all looked pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, like today, everybody talks about, well, they've all got these, you know, cam tail tube shapes, you know, that, that cropped airfoil thing, drop seat stays, blah, blah, blah. All bikes look the same. And yeah, you can make a broad generalization of that, but actually they don't. You know, if you think about today, Pinarello Dogma doesn't look like anything else in no. the Peloton. Absolutely doesn't. You know, I mean, it's the only one with caliper brakes still, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's actually it's the only one with rim brakes left, yeah. Um, um, but then, you know, you look at something like the giant TCR, which mm -hmm. its fundamental silhouette hasn't changed since it, it came out in the mm -hmm. early 90s, but they haven't adopted that drop seat state thing, mm -hmm. you know. And and then Cervelo, the R-series bikes, there's no drop seat stays there either. You know, so they, they don't all look the same. It's just these make these big, broad generalizations. I, I guess if, if you're looking at them from a very broad out view, they all look... And bikes have always looked the same because it, it, yeah. it's, it's two triangles with two wheels and yeah. some curly handlebars. Yeah. It's when you sort of get into the detail that they start to look a bit more different. And, and yeah. I guess the, the, the nerdier you are, the more involved you are, it's easy to pick out those details yeah. from the ones yeah. that look similar. Yeah, which sort of kind of brings me to like the first bike I really wanted to talk about. And that's um, it's the BMC Pro Machine SLC01, okay. which is the bike that Floyd Landis rode in 2006. Now, mm -hmm. obviously... That didn't stand. Mm -hmm. um, BMC were the most unfortunate bike brand in right. that era because you think they had Landis and then who do they have after that? Vinokurov. Mm -hmm. You know, they backed so many of the wrong horses. <laughs> it, it was, you know, I, I, I felt for them at the time. Yeah. But then if you look at that 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 pro machine, um, it was them fully embracing carbon but still using these kind of mad designs that they, they kind of formulated in their earlier bikes. The aluminium looked bikes um and so you had a top tube that was effectively t-shaped right um don't know why you know yeah. <laughs> um th but they had really good engineering ideas behind it i can remember being in you know launch briefings about that bike uh -huh. and sort of going okay yeah mm -hmm. yeah you know oh it's like a you know like a steel girder it's like a steel girder off. yeah yeah you know, uh, i'm not sure why that's good for a bike or not <laughs> and everything and then it had like this um truss like arrangement on the seat tube where the seat tube met the top tube mm -hmm. you know we had you know, a seat tube, top tube, and then these bits kind of coming off it. It almost looked like the roots of a tree. It had these kind okay. of members coming off, the, offering support and stuff like that. And it sort of dropped the seat stays a little bit, but not too much. Uh -huh. um, and then the down tube was almost like octagonal shaped. 
and massively right. oversized. So it had all these crazy ideas going on. They called the design like IC, ICS skeleton okay. or something, which was almost like a, they put an exoskeleton on the bike. So it had these kind of, the tubes had these kind of ribs mm-hmm. and things that would, um, but it looked amazing and it looked so different to anything else that was out there. You know, but it was sort of one of those bikes I can remember at the time just really admiring but I don't know if I had the guts to buy one. <laughs> <laughs> but but BMC should be really applauded for, you know, they've always sort of stepped out of the, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, they've stepped out of the norm. And there are, you know, there are things that they've done that are, are sort of misses. You know, you could say a lot of that pro machine, you know, a lot of those kind of design ideas were big, big misses. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you move on to like, I think it was, well, late 2000, so 2000, 2008, 2009. Um, and you had like the, one of the earlier slro ones mm-hmm. now it still retained quite a lot of those kind of elements so it's still a kind of t-shaped top tube but it had been smoothed out it had been okay. a bit more a few more smooth corners on it and it, it had evolved a little so almost a bit more triangulated mm-hmm. um and the seat tube top tube junction there it still had these kind of truss like supports but they were really minimal really small but the key thing was that the seat stays had dropped about six or seven inches down from below the junction right first bike out there to do it yeah, how and how long is it? What fifteen it was, years ago? Yeah, two thousand, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I think right, it okay. was. Yeah, um, and it at the time it looked mad and radical. Yeah. Now it's absolutely the norm. And then if you also think about that bike, um, the seat tube, the seat post was square. Right. Okay. Which I don't again. I don't really know why they did that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that evolved into a D-shaped post, which is. Uh, which is pretty much the standard now yeah. on road bikes. Which is this cam tail design, which is basically a, like an, kind of, yeah. an aerofoil with a chopped off sharp bit at the back. Yeah, yeah. So it it sort of cheats the air into thinking it's a full airfoil. So you get mm. that kind of aerodynamic benefit, but without the weight. And Presumably some engineering makes it easier, maybe. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so, you know, BMC had these lots of radical ideas that missed, but there's lots of radical ideas that mm-hmm. are now basically the norm, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think... In the grand scheme of things, BMC aren't a huge brand. You know, they no. don't sell millions of bikes, but their influence on bike design going right up till today is on a par with you know biggest brand in the industry. Mm. You know, giant. They're, mm-hmm. they're on a par in the influence that they've shown. Mm-hmm. They've shown on. Is that do you think because BMC is such a almost like a race focused brand? They've always been in. You know, they've had a, a big team a lot of the time, and they've had yeah. big riders, even if they're not the biggest brand in terms of volume. I think so. Yeah, yeah. If you think back to their earliest days, they they had racing road bikes, mm. and then they brought out racing hardtails mm-hmm. for XC, mm. and they always supported racing, pure racing. You know, they've evolved into a bigger brand now mm. that you know now they've got e-bikes and they've got town bikes and yeah, and that sort of thing. But they've never really lost that original mm-hmm. ethos. I mean, you know, and you think it's like. BMC's kind of it's gone through a few changes of ownership gone through, through but they from that kind of first reinvention because prior to to those bikes you know it was just called it's the bicycle manufacturing company is that what it stands that's for that's what it stands wow. for yeah and, and I think their first bikes were licensed designs from Rally right okay so they were, they were basically making cheap bikes for the Swiss market you know right okay and yeah, so yeah. you know they've they've come a long long way yeah and to have such a high regard and high respect uh, and I don't think you can underestimate that, mm-hmm. you know, that level of influence they've had on being really bold mm-hmm. with design. Do you think that's something that's echoed maybe with Cervelo as well in that case? You know, uh, not a yeah. massive brand, but yeah, very yeah. race focused, have had some influential designs. Yeah, definitely. You know, if you think of um, you think of Cervelo, especially with the like the, the Soloist and, mm-hmm. and the S-Series bikes. So arguably the first aero road bikes. Yeah. You know, they sort of invented that genre. But... 
again, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, yeah, the Soloist was was that bike that it looked fast, it looked super aero, but it was also light. Mm -hmm. I think that's the key element because you know, if you go back to like early nineties, and I can't remember the actual sort of year. It might have even been nineteen ninety. It might have even been that early. Although you know, don't don't shoot me <laughs> don't shoot me down if I'm wrong. You know, my memory's not what it was. Um, but look, had a bike called the KG one nine six, or the KG one nine six Monoblade. And uh, anybody that doesn't know what that bike is, I swear, just Google it have now. Them, just them, just them, have them. a look. Look, KG the KG one nine six Monoblade. KG one six one nine six one nine six one. And six mono blade. It's a Google image search live as we go. Okay. Now, if you look, at, you know, you look at this bike. That's it, pretty bonkers, it's, isn't it? It's mad. It's a one. It's a monocoque carbon fiber bike. Yeah. You look at the seat tube. Super deep, super aero. It scoops around the rear wheel. Yeah. You know, like a time trial bike. Uh, the front end. It's got effectively a, it's a dual crown fork. It's a dual crown fork. You know, and and you look at that and think that's nineteen ninety. Mm. Now. Compare that to like Factor or, mm -hmm. you know, case in point, the Cervelo S5. Yeah. You know, their ultimate aero bike, it's got a dual crown fork. Yeah. Because you can have that fully bladed front end. You know, look, we're doing that. A long time. I mean, it looks bikes now, like they, they still have that sort of semi integrated stem into the, yeah. you know, the, the, the top tube drops down into the head tube. So the stem sits in there. I remember that even on the mountain bikes, mm. um, that Factor Visveris was one of the first road bikes I ever tested. Back eight years ago or something, yeah. you know, incredibly harsh. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I didn't particularly yeah. like it. But, yeah, um, but if you think, you know, that that bike, that's it's thirty years old. Yeah, and some of the ideas there, obviously, they're in their infancy there. They, they haven't been polished and no. preened the way that that the latest Cervelo S five has. But you know, that's radical design there. I mean, just for context for for listeners, if you if you haven't got Google image search in front of you like literally the so we see on uh, on a lot of like tt bikes especially ones that aren't uci compliant mm -hmm. you know that that seat tube really does wrap right around the rear wheel so it's you know it's got a curved intersection there's like a little peak almost behind the behind the seat stays sort of continuing that aero shape around the wheel yeah and it um, wraps really really tight it really it's like wraps you, you wouldn't doesn't it? you know you, you wouldn't get a, a piece of paper That's between between tire and yeah and frame and then yeah the, the fork isn't a traditional so the head tube looks like it's got a much smaller diameter it's it's got that dual crown fork on there again and the fork's got some aero tapering sort of between you know just underneath the head tube the down tube looks like it's got some sort of aero shape in there doesn't look round a squash top tube internal cable routing it looks bonkers yeah and you think that's that's 30 years old yeah you know and it 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 was pretty successful you know yeah you know if you think then they, they sponsored onsite then mm -hmm. and i think you got like um Eduardo Olmos, Olmos, mm. I can't remember. I think he took four four tour stages, right? You know, so it was a, it was a it was a really successful bike, and I think the you know the influence is there to see. Yeah, even you know, I don't think I don't think look really sort of get the credit. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't know if that's because I don't know whether it was direct influence or it's just one of those kind of design ideas that people have absorbed and then and then thought about, and you know, mm -hmm. they don't know where it came from, but but they're sort of. Do you think maybe, I mean, look, it feels sort of from my general knowledge of, of the industry, looks being pretty focused just on the French market. It doesn't seem, it never feels like it's grown outside of Francophone. Uh, yeah, I think I think you're probably right on that. I mean, I, I, I think that the, the issue with, look, bikes is that they're not a big volume manufacturer. Mm -hmm. So 
I think it's always been just the pedals, isn't it? Not actually that easy to get hold of. Yeah, you know, um, and uh, yeah, and, and I think when you're you're selling hundreds of thousands of pedals a mm. year, you're probably not that bothered. Yeah, out of it's friends. a sort of it's a, you know it's it's one of those sort of things, you know. And then you figure you know, and you know, thinking around the same sort of era, it's like in, in for completely different reasons. Like um, Greg LeMond's like 1990 LeMond branded bike, fairly sort of standard looking you know fairly sort of traditional looking etc but but what i think is interesting with lamont is that he always really embraced new technology mm-hmm. if he could think of something that would give him that little bit of an advantage you know it, take it. the obvious thing is the scott tri bars that, yeah you know he you know they're allegedly beating lamont on it i mean sorry beating Fignon. Mm-hmm. um but then he he wasn't afraid to try these kind of different things you think about the scott drop-in bar that he ran Mm-hmm. Where you know it's a normal drop bar, but then it had a ninety degree bend at the end with a flat mm-hmm. that you know headed towards the head tube. So you had this super low, super tight position. Yeah, you know, and that's like proto aerodynamic kind of thinking. You know, mm-hmm. and it's kind of. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of using the drop in bar. Uh, no, no it, uh, it's not a pleasure. Right, they. Bendy is not the word. Uh-huh. You know, it's like you're, it's like trying to hold on to wet pasta and steer a bike <laughs> at the same time. It's freaky, but um, but I but they're the things that you remember. You know, yeah. that's a kind of sort of tech dead end that you know that never it, sort of yeah, um, never it never caught on probably for good reason. Um, I think tech dead ends would be a good podcast, by the way. Yeah. We'll, um, we'll get that done. And, but you know, some of those dead ends are things that just get outlawed because. Mm-hmm. You know, so somebody somebody making a rules takes umbrage. You know, mm-hmm. the, the ultimate thing of that is a chilli, you know, spinachi. These kind of mini mini tri bars mm-hmm. that you put on your road bike. They're only you know, a few inches long, but it mm-hmm. gives you this little handhold in the middle. Yeah. And if you think, you know, they've sort of um, the rules and regs, they kind of outlaw people hitting that, getting into that position now, where they, you rest your yeah. elbows on, you're not actually fully in control of the bike. Bring back the spinachi. It gives somebody a, a safe, secure hold. Yeah. Didn't someone get um, told off at the other week? Uh, one of the sort of the smaller tours for having like really elongated tops on his on his bars. Hmm. There's something you know, like again, it, they look like a, a bar, but just the, the the drops sort of I don't know six inches further yeah. out than they would have yeah, been. Yeah. I mean, one of the tricks used to be, you know, going back when they did outlaw spinachi because I remember when it, when it, you know, I was around when it sort of happened and everybody loved them. But then what you did to get a sort of spinachi like feel, and this is I, I think back of it now, it's absolute madness all your cabling was external and this is going back to when Shimano STI when the when the cables exited out the side of the mm-hmm. you know they didn't they didn't go onto the bar you had these big cable loops yeah. that just came you used to like gaffer tape them together mm-hmm. and hold the cables is it you literally put your hands in forward and hold the cables yeah, so yeah. you get to a time trial position with no TT bars yeah. holding the cables yeah. and you just think <laughs> I mean, about that now it's compliance mental <laughs> Absolutely mental, but but it was kind of it was one of those kind of you know it's one of those tricks. Of, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just take your cables, hold your cables. Was there someone? Did I see a picture once of, of people who had like little bars almost um, welded into the top crown of the fork or something, so you could get oh, like yeah, some of those some of those. Like, I'm guessing yeah, adventurous time trials, seventies or something, daft like that. No, no, like, it's, 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 it was um, in the velodrome. People yeah. did that, didn't they? Well, I you know, many years ago, I went over to Bianchi to do a feature on the, mm. the history of the brand, and they gave me access to their their historic collection, you know, which is going back, you know, again, they had faster copies bikes and, mm. you know, um, Ulrich's bike, um, Magnus Baxter's Roubaix winning Thai bike, but they had Pantani's bikes there as well. And one of Pantani's TT bikes, mm-hmm. um, 
the wing TT bars were welded onto the fork crown. Right, okay. And so it just had a head tube with a, a capped headset. And it, they'd put like a little rubber pad on it uh-huh. on the top of the headset. So if you're running, you could actually just sort of rest your chin okay. on it. And then you're holding these bars <laughs> that are directly linked to the fork. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm tall. Mm. You know, I'm over 6'2", and Pantani really wasn't. And I tried to ride that bike, and it was ridiculous. Yeah. It was, you know, it was worse than trying to ride like a clown bike mm-hmm. and like the photographer i had with me was a bit short to me he couldn't ride it and it, it I, I reckon it was probably the riding position your elbows would have been lower than the top of the front tire mm-hmm. right. that's how slammed it was yeah and it was insane um and i'm pretty sure it was kind of it was probably banned after you know mm-hmm. minutes of it being ridden, and and you ride, you know, you sort of look at it, and you're going to understand why. But again, you know, that's that's what I'm talking about with the bikes that made that kind of impact. That be them dead ends or be them whatever, mm-hmm. it's great when you see somebody trying something. Different, yeah, yeah, you know, trying to push the push the boundaries. I think you know one, that's one of the things that people talk about where bikes all look the same today. I think it's because. Most of the brands have the same sort of tools available to them now. You know, you've got CFD, mm-hmm. you know, computational fluid dynamics, blah, blah, blah. You can go to a wind tunnel. You can do all that that technical stuff. And then, you know, even the software that helps you design bikes now, you know, it's it's pretty much available to everybody. So yeah. everybody comes up with a library of tubes when they know the properties of those tubes and they, you know, they, you kind of Lego construct them. There's less room for innovation now because everyone understands all the things that are important. It's, it's such a massive, greater understanding of, you know, and it happens to any sport where... Um, that's innovation driven. Yeah. You know, because as soon as you get that investment, you know, the ultimate one of that is like Formula One. You know, everybody argues that Formula One cars today all look the same and they pretty much do. Yeah. They're not, obviously, otherwise, you know, nobody would win. Mm. Um, but if you think about that kind of 80s Formula One, when you think people like Tyrrell coming up with a six wheel car yeah, yeah, yeah. or Williams with their ground effect car, you know, a yeah. car that literally sucked itself to the ground. Mm. Um, mad innovation like that, you mm. know, and, and that's what we saw in this kind of era of bike designers people mm-hmm. weren't afraid to try and i guess the thing with you know the, the, there's a there's a risk to trying these things you know because yeah. if they don't and, and there's a cost to trying those things and if they don't work then you're kind of a bit knackered yeah. and, and i guess these days you know with all those technological improvements and i guess people may be a bit more focused on making sure that everything does work because yeah. you know money's tighter and, or and, whatever and, it is there's yeah, less room for innovation well, I think there's also less room for innovation because we have become so good at making carbon bikes. Yeah. If you think about a lot of those kind of early carbon bikes, they were still tube to tube. So you you made some carbon tubes, mm-hmm. you glued them to other carbon tubes, you wrapped some carbon around it, and that's how you made a frame, mm. which means you haven't got that expensive tooling for molds and all the preparation, that you know, the front end preparation goes into that. You could literally go and make something. Mm-hmm. Stick it, put it together, and that sort of thing. You know, I um, many years ago I was talking to um, to Gerard Vrooman mm-hmm. about the early, you know, and Phil White about the early days of Svelo. You know, when they were when they were students and they were making like carbon ideas for frames mm-hmm. for you know for their for their triathlon and TT frames, and literally making them at home using the oven in their kitchen to right cook to carbon. Cure it all, yeah. You know, you couldn't do that today. Yeah, you know. It's like, where's your autoclave? Where's your, you know, where's your expensive, you know, um, you know, machine 3D tooling and all uh-huh. that sort of stuff? And it's like, well, you know, these guys are just making stuff, you know, on their kitchen table. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and and it's that kind of, it's sad that we've lost that, 
I think, mm -hmm. because you do end up with with things that are always going to gravitate to being the same thing. And and I think it's also brands have got to sell bikes. Yeah. And so making something completely out there and completely mad, like I was saying with the, with BMC, um, with that that pro machine, it's the sort of thing you look at and go, wow, that's amazing. But then it comes to the crunch and you go, but I'm not oh, going to buy it. I'm not going to buy it. Yeah. A bit like, um, you know, every year when people launch new bikes, we all look at them and go, oh, look at that. It's, you know, I love that shocking pink that they've come out with that yeah. bike. And I love that sort of acid fake color and everything. Blah, blah, blah. And then you talk to the brands going, yeah, we mainly sell them in black. Yeah. You know. Everyone likes the idea of those fancy things, yeah. but the reality is when it's your when it's yeah. in pocket, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm pie, you know, I'm sort of, well, I'm not pie to that because I always buy bikes that are mad colors, but other ones that I, you know, could talk about. And, and talking about that kind of innovation stuff as well. Um, and, and it, it's looking at the small, you know, all the small parts sort of thing. And when you're looking at those bits of, of innovation and you think like, I'm thinking like um, Armstrong, sort of 2004, 2005-ish on mm -hmm. the, you know, the carbon tracks. And he, you know, he turned up at, you know, obviously big track sponsorship and mm -hmm. he should be riding around on Bontrager wheels, blah, blah, blah. He turns up on the start line with German lightweight wheels because uh -huh. uh, they were insanely light. And, you know, in the rumor mill then sort of thing because he was using them or it was using them. And there's a few other riders there, you know, and the kind of rumor mill then, and I remember talking to the guys from Lightweight at, at, at Eurobike, they're going, oh, we don't give them to pros. They pay they for them. They buy them, they, yeah. they buy them, you know. And there's always been <clears> things <throat> like that about, you know, certain, certain yeah. bits that people are looking for an advantage. And that still goes on today, you know, going, back, say, yeah. going back to like, you know. Um, so osymmetric rings that yeah, Wigo is yeah, using. We go, yeah, Wigo, the oval chain rings. Yeah. That's something, you know, that, you know, there's lots of compelling arguments that they really do a job. Um I've never, I've never had the time to actually use them. I mean, testing those has got to be so, it's got to be so difficult to. But the, the problem is that you know when you're in a position where you're testing lots and lots of different things, mm. and everybody that sort of talks about oval rings or egg rings or, or whatever, they always say oh, you've got to use them solidly yeah. for a few months, yeah, and then you'll see the benefits. It's like, well, I can't mm. because I've got. Five, you're not going to fit it to your yeah. 500 quid bike you're testing. In well, the, I've got in five the... other bikes I've got to yeah. test at the same time, so I can't. I can put on my own bike, but I'll never see the purity mm. and the benefit of it because I, you know, the job doesn't allow it. Mm. Um, um, so, you know, but but then, the, you know, you have to look and see there's lots and lots of innovations like that, you know. It's like guys like Ceramic Speed, you know, mm -hmm. uh, upgrading upgrading lots of pro bikes um, sort of on the sly because, you know, it's a big expense and it's a small advantage, but... When you're dealing with margins that are so small, yeah, I think it's you know I think it's probably worth it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 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 the glory of the top step of the podium, or it's the, being an also around. You know, that's the difference. Yeah. So it's kind of, um, I, I can fully understand why people would just want to take every advantage they could find. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's probably all you know it's something I talk about with you know my friends quite a lot about the sort of the psychology almost of racing. I know we're sort of deviating from from the topic, but like. If if you believe that you have this advantage, or if you yeah. believe that someone else has an advantage, it plays a part in. Oh, definitely. Yeah, you know, definitely, and, definitely. and and I think, I, that, I think you know that almost placebo effect of those sort of things. Yeah, is almost as important as the benefit itself. You know, I was chatting to uh, that. That was it. It was about the the mountain bike World Cup, cross country World Cup at the moment. We're, we're seeing more and more dropper posts on on these super lightweight XC bikes, and if you get a course, say like Albstadt in Germany, which isn't a particularly technical course, if you can see that you're you know, fellow racers are running a drop post for the descents, but you feel you can get down the descents okay without it. You might run a an marginally lighter, rigid post, 
which is going to help you in inverted commas on the climbs mm. and you know it's the climbs where you're going to lose the race so it's that psychological element of who's got what and what impact is that going to have for them or what's it going to have for you yeah yeah and i guess going back to you know when i was saying about um armstrong and his trek i mean that's that's a bike that's really worth talking about is the the trek 5900 so the predecessor to the madone um so i think it was like 2003 oclv carbon mm -hmm. um and the thing with that bike is is like it was full carbon you know up until there were lots of carbon bikes around that predated that and that sort mm. of thing but were they full carbon it's kind of arguable because most of them would have aluminium inserts right you know obviously aluminium inserts in the dropouts is fine yeah, and yeah, in yeah, the yeah. bottom bracket etc but a lot of bikes around then would also have sort of sort of suedo lugs mm -hmm. inside you know they'd have an aluminium reinforcement in the head tube and an aluminium reinforcement in the seat tube mm -hmm. you know those those important junctions check with that that level of bike in the oclv then they did away with all of those right and they came up with a groundbreakingly light bike mm -hmm. you know that bike complete was 7.2 kilos which for the time yeah is pretty impressive yeah. i mean it's still pretty impressive today to be honest um and i think you know when they a big brand mass market brand came mm -hmm. out with that everybody went oh wow it's doable mm -hmm. because yes there were a lot of micro brands around at that time you know i'm just thinking some of the you know the super small german brands you mm -hmm. know ax lightness and um or out in the states you know guys like parley yes they were making lighter carbon fiber frames mm. but they were phenomenally expensive yeah. And they were completely handmade, and there yeah. was, you know, there was all that kind of attention to detail, and they weren't within the reach of normal people. Mm -hmm. Trek, big brand, available on every high street. Mm -hmm. To do it, the rest of the industry had to go. Oh right, it's doable. We yeah. need to go down this this path. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a hugely influential bike in in driving carbon fiber mm -hmm. forward, um, just in the same way as like the. Two, you know, 2002, so around the same time, Giant came out with the first composite TCR. Yeah. It was raced in 2002, but you couldn't buy it until 2003. Mm -hmm. And that's what I miss about Tour de France. Tour de France used to do that. You'd see a bike on the start line and go, wow, look at that, it's amazing. Yeah. And it wouldn't be available for a year, mm -hmm. 18 months, something later. Now, the market has changed so much that the brands will say to you, that bike was starting on Tour de France. It's available in stores now. Yeah. And so you've kind of lost that almost lost that exclusivity and i think that you know with the, the the way that pro racing hasn't embraced the new tech quite as as, as much as the public mm -hmm. i'm talking disc brakes obviously I, don't, mm -hmm. I hate bringing up this <laughs> this age-old ridiculous no point argument but i i think there's a huge amount of 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 sporty recreational whatever riders out there they now fully understand that we can go and buy a bike that's technically more advanced, technically mm -hmm. better mm -hmm. than what's being raced by the best riders on the planet. Yeah. And that's odd. You it's know. More, probably one of the only sports where you yeah. can do that. Yeah, completely. Absolutely. You know, and so, but going back to that TCR, that compact frame shape, that's when it really sort of, people really looked at it. You know, mm -hmm. in aluminium, everybody gone, oh, yeah, that's smart. That's kind of clever and everything. But then when, once they did it in carbon, Everybody starts to take notice. Mm -hmm. And then you had these big traditional brands, you know, thinking of guys like, you know, some of the big Italian legendary brands, guys like De Rosa, mm -hmm. um, Cinelli, um, started coming out with compact bikes. Yeah. 
And for years, they go, no, no, road bikes, you know, race bikes have a straight, flat top tube. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they were all doing this because they saw the benefits. They mm-hmm. saw, you can reduce weight. You make it a little bit more aerodynamic. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, less frame sizes. Less frame sizes, yeah. Yeah, all those all those kind of things. So, you know, you never really underestimate something, which now seems really simple, mm-hmm. but actually was a was a really big, big thing. Um, and also, I think that was one of the, one of those moments, like the Trek moment as well, where you saw these huge brands become the tech leaders. Mm-hmm. Whereas prior to that, it was always there was always a mystery in the tour. Yeah, about I know what that bike says on it, but, but who, what is it? Who made it? Yeah, you know, if you think back to um, Injurain, you know, ninety, you know. In the nineties, like ninety three, ninety four, whatever you know, the Pinarello it was riding, beautiful bike, sunny mm-hmm. looking, gorgeous paint job. Rumor mill at the time and ever ever since is that um, they were handmade by Dario Pigoretti, right? You know, and then most of those other legends of that era, you know, your Pantanis, your Cipollinis, and all, all were rumored to have the bikes that they were racing in, you know, in the big races in the Giro in the Tour. Mm-hmm. Were, were made by guys like Pegaretti, you know. Just custom built for them. Just custom built exactly yeah, for them. Stick it know. up. Yeah. And so it's kind of that sort of thing. And I think it's because of what we were saying about the way that technical manufacturing has changed. Mm-hmm. There's less call for that mm-hmm. artisan. And I, I, I guess, you know, if we look at like the modern, most modern bikes now, you know, um, we talked about this earlier on about how you know, aerodynamics, everything is so computer controlled and, and designed and all that sort of stuff. Those small manufacturers maybe don't have the resources that the bigger companies have, unless those mm. bigger companies can probably make the better bikes in, in I think, some yeah, respect. Yeah, yeah. Well, you only have to look at, you know, guys like Specialized, the amount of investment they put in R&D, yeah. you know, they built around wind tunnel. Yeah. They've got a composites research department in Morgan Hill. Mm. You know, they've got test labs there. You know, when I went out there a few years back, um, just prior to the last, tarmac um you know they had ct scanners mm. they bought ct scanners so they could they could literally scan frames and yeah and composite components and go out and like or make them fail yeah and scan why they were failing yeah as in real time you know and and it's just you just see things like that and it's like if you're if you're a super clever brilliant you know engineer making stuff in your shed at your end of your mm. garden you, you can't compete. You can't compete. You haven't got the millions of dollars that it requires to, to, you know, to come up with these things. Which, uh, you know, I guess it's something that we're losing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you can, you can still find those kind of clever artisanal, yeah, almost bikes. But it's not in professional racing anymore. Yeah, it's in things like gravel. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, you know, you you ride a bike on gravel. You're loud, mm. you know, with the fork and everything. That's a small brand mm. full of big ideas. You know, recently I've been riding um, um, a bike from Vast, mm-hmm. the A1, which is um, a magnesium alloy. Yeah. Now, magnesium alloys have come and gone over the years. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Pinarello had a magnesium alloy bike when everybody was was obsessed with aluminium and scandium and whatever. Mm. Um, and this is a relatively, inaffor- uh, a relatively affordable gravel bike. Um, it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. But the frame is great. Is it? Yeah, it's um, it's got this kind of life and spring to it that's mm-hmm. like the very best steel. Okay, but it's a fraction of the weight of yeah, what yeah. a steel bike would be. It almost feels like 
really good quality titanium. But not at three but, grand a frame. Yeah, but not at those sort of prices. You know, and I think it's like their first go mm. is the you know the A1. And I'm really excited what the next one will be. I spoke to Vast at Eurobike um, a couple of years ago when they, I think they kind of launched a brand at Eurobike. The only reason why I remember is that they gave me a t-shirt and it's one of the most comfortable t-shirts I have. So every now and again, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Vast. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah I remember. So, you know, I'm quite excited. I'm glad, I'm glad they're doing all right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm quite excited about what, what they'll do next, you know. And I'm quite interested on, you know, that, that bike has this, such a lovely compliant feel. And you know, you know, we all know coming, you know, not too distant future and, and already here from, from some brands is that kind of suspension gravel fork. Mm. You know, obviously Lauf already have one and there's, you it's know, it's kind of around, the lefty and um, MRP. MRP. Yeah. But, you know, some of the bigger players in the market are, are coming with new products soon. And I, I think that bike, that, that vast chassis with, mm. a, with a fork on the front would be really, really fun bike to ride. Mm. So, yeah, I think the innovation's still there. It's just it's it's moved out of that kind of tight constrictions of what pro racing is. Yeah, you know, and, and then you know, talk you know, for talking about metal and stuff, you know, I think one of the most influential bikes is probably mid to late nineties, so ninety six, ninety seven, Cannondale, the Cat Three, you know, the the legendary red and yellow Team mm-hmm. Seiko Cipollini, you know, um, which at that time he rode the fastest ever tour stage, uh-huh. you know, on that bike. Um, and then promptly went home before it got too hard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that thing, you know, that was a super like sub, sub eight kilo bike, you know, um, massive oversized down tube, mm. you know, sort of they, they were looking at shaping and um, manipulating aluminium like it had never been done before. Massively influential, you know, that key Cannondale thing, the massive oversized down tube, you know, they're kind of snaky shaped stays and things like that. If, if you look at what came after that, you know, you look at, you know, Really nice small brands, Principia, um, Stork, mm-hmm. um, and then even the you know the big players in the market, you know the Treks of this world and the, uh, the specialised things like that. Everybody came with this super oversized down tube aluminium thing and all that sort of stuff. Um, but that was almost kind of a, a dead end. You know, aluminium never got really developed as much as it should because carbon came along and usurped it. Mm-hmm. But then if you look at the latest, really good aluminium bikes that are good price points, so you know. Cab 13, yeah. um, Special LA, that sort of thing. They've gone away from that massively oversized aluminium thing mm-hmm. because, yeah, when you oversized it that big, you could bring the weight right down and bring the stiffness right up. But I think from then to today, we're all sort of going, yeah, we want stiffness, but I only want it in the right way. In the right way, yeah. And and so, you know, that was kind of a an evolutionary den-in sort of thing. Uh-huh. But still, fabulous bike, you know. And you think about, you know, some of the, some of the, the, Tricks that kind of they used to have to pull to because their bikes were so light, you know. Drilling bits and yeah, drillium. Yeah. yeah, lead shot in it and that sort of thing, you know. Or even when they were really obvious, when they were having their bit of protest, I think it was Simone's bike, like gluing weights to the top tube, uh-huh. you know, super gluing weights on, on the top tube just to bring it up to up to the, up to the, standard. the, yeah, the yeah. standard. Okay. So, yeah, so you know, I think that's that's just how. Do you think? Do you think we're going to see? And I know we sort of said, you know, these, these big brands that they have, they have massive sort of development budgets. They have lots of R and D, but they also have to be very wary of of the return on investment. Does this? We reckon this is going to stifle things. Then I think it's twofold on that. I think the restrictions imposed by the UCI. I mean, the UCI have sort of had a little bit more of an open policy in recent years. They've mm-hmm. made some changes, and you know, things are slowly. They're slowly opening opening up to new ideas. 
Um, but I just wonder if professional road racing has the allure mm. and the sales allure that it once had. Mm-hmm. It used to be you watch the tour, that's the bike you wanted. Yeah. Now I'm not sure it is. And I think it's because the sort of bikes people want to ride aren't necessarily racers. Mm-hmm. So, and you only have to look how good the whole endurance bike sector has got. Mm. You know, how brilliant is Giants Defy? How brilliant is Cannondale Synapse? How good is the Specialized Rebate? I know that's a, a you know, a bike racing in the classics mm. and everything, but it's an endurance bike. Mm. You know, it, it seems like most brands' endurance platforms are really good, mm-hmm. you know. And then you're seeing brands that you'd never imagine would be in that market, you know, Cervelo. Yeah. You know, with the, with the, the Caledonia, mm-hmm. which, I, you know, I, in our awards, I give it the endurance bike of the year. That's a bike you'd never imagine Cervelo would ever make. Yeah. And it's brilliant because it's, it's sporty and it's fast, but it's comfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's, and I think people have realized that's what they want. You know, I, I, you know, if you look at other kind of vehicle sporty markets, mm-hmm. you know, Nobody's buying MotoGP bikes. No. They're buying fast street racers. And, you know, in cars, people are people do go out and buy weird little single-seater things for track days, but they're very wealthy people that mm-hmm. can afford to have something that you you literally take on a trailer and race around a track. Or, you know, or they buy a, you know, a, a Caterham 7 type thing. You know, little uncomfortable open-top things that are yeah, stunningly fast and stunning fun, but you won't want to live with it. Yeah. You know, they probably trailered it there, you know, with, with a Range Rover on it yeah. and a flatbed sort of thing. So, and I think the road market is sort of like that. People mm-hmm. are like, well, I want a bike that is easier to live with. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if you think about something like aero road market, is exactly that. Mm-hmm. If you think like the last generation Specialized Venge, before they effectively stopped making the Venge and mashed it up with the Tarmac, which, mm-hmm. is, which is, you know, something that you can sort of come to. But the one prior to that, the Vias Venge, mm-hmm. arguably a faster bike than the Venge that replaced it, if you're talking pure aerodynamics. Yeah. But the one that replaced it was lighter, so it was, it was more easy to live with. Mm-hmm. And now the new one, which is actually a Tarmac, where they've mashed ideas from the Venge into the Tarmac, again, easier to live with than the Venge that preceded mm-hmm. it. And I think that's market-driven. There are hardcore roadies out there that love that fast bike and oh, you know i really like a fast bike um but they're not the easiest bikes to live with they're yeah. quite difficult to work on to maintain there isn't really an aero road bike out there that's as comfortable as a good all-rounder bike you know uh, there's always exceptions to every rule so i, I would say you know the trick with down mm-hmm. with its size of speed mm-hmm. most comfortable aero bike i've ever ridden but that's the most comfortable aero bike. Yeah, yeah yeah and so you're seeing Pros love those bikes because they do offer a tangible advantage mm-hmm. in going fast, but they haven't been the wild sales success that the investment took to get to. Yeah. So, you know, I think people look at those bikes and go, God, that looks amazing. But I'll buy the, mm-hmm. you know, if you're talking like Canada, you look at system things and go, God, look at that. That looks so fast standing still. But I'm going to buy an Evo. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's pro- I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, car salesman or, or any car trains but i'm pretty sure people probably walk into lots of people walk into a porsche garage and look at a 911 you know turbo whatever mm. and go wow look at that 200 mile an hour supercar mm. but i'm going to buy the 
the, the Carrera, the, the SUV, or whatever <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, or I'm going to buy a less powerful yeah. 911, you know, because you like the idea of it, but then you think, oh, is it? Yeah. Is, is shopping it, in that. Yeah, is it me? Sort of thing. Um, and, go, you know, like going back to that sort of almost placebo effect, it, you know, the one thing I would say about it, whenever you're riding an aero bike is you always feel you have to live up to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can't go for a Sunday cruise yeah. on, you know, a, a bike that's so aerodynamically advanced. Yeah. You know, you, you can't go for a poodle, you know, with with, you know, your partner or your kids on mm. your Savannah West 5. Yeah. You know, you, you can't go for a, you know, a, a Sunday pub run, you know, with, with your dad's mates, yeah. you know, on a, you know. So that's what uh, I feel about, about bright bikes as well. <laughs> you got like <laughs> yeah, a fancy looking, you know. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there's looking the part and there's actually, you know, right, you know. Yeah. And so I, I just think it's kind of, it's almost commercial realities that, mm. that having that halo product, it's a halo product, that's mm. what bikes in the tour are. Um, is one thing, but it, if if it doesn't actually ever sort of translate into sales, then yeah, you know, you, you know, you take someone like Giant in you know their kind of road lineup, TCR, stunning, brilliant, mm. awesome bike, Propel, super fast, super clever design, Giant Defy, gloriously comfortable, mm. very very accomplished bike, biggest selling, Defy, yeah, you know, it's sort of. I think we'd all love to be that propel rider, but reality is most of us aren't. Yeah. You know, so, um, I, and I, I don't know if there's enough money in professional cycling mm-hmm. or enough will from the brands, so that it could become like a Formula One. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love to see that. I'd love to see mm-hmm. the rule book being thrown out. So, um, you know, on those mountain stages, they're on. You know, nano light bikes that yeah, are just yeah. push every single boundary and but then when they get to the top of outdoors there's a team car waiting there so they can swap, swap bikes bike, yeah, onto yeah. something aero to get back down the other side even faster in time trials you know sacrilege but they ride recumbents yeah. because they're <laughs> infinitely faster than any time trial bike they're just so much more aero efficient you yeah know? If, you know they were riding around in like these sort of mad teardrops because the rules were being yeah, yeah, yeah. you know so it, it became a technological arms race mm. it would be mm. it would be you know fascinating mm-hmm. but anti-commercial because it's not yeah. it wouldn't be it's about about selling the brand it's not about selling the yeah. product um i don't think it'll ever happen mm. but it'd be an exciting of thing to see it would yeah well maybe in um five ten years time we'll come back and we'll talk about you know what recumbent for uh, <laughs> a flat stage of the tour yeah. <laughs> but yeah i think we'll we'll wrap it up there and um, thanks so much Warren. that's really interesting um do keep an ear out as said for all the other tour de france podcasts that are going on they're going out on fridays throughout the tour uh, with a couple going on mondays too um, and of course um the podcast does go out every monday so don't forget to subscribe um and if you know anyone else who might be interested in this do share it with them as well uh thank you very much was Thanks, Tom. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bike Radar.